Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and gift mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customize paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. So, Rodney, you were you were doing fantastic at the agency. You had an extraordinarily bright career ahead of you. Why did why did you decide to leave? But leaving was one of the toughest decisions I've ever had to make. We had all sorts of changes happening to CIA and the intelligence community writ large. We had the introduction of the director of national intelligence, uh, which to me, it made me feel a little bit diminished, I think, at the agency because we felt less central than we were before. Hmm. And the, and some of the leadership that I was witnessing, um, they're great people, smart people, but a lot of the advice I was getting, uh, we were getting, was just hunker down, keep your head down, keep doing what you're doing. And I, I wanted more than that. I wanted, I wanted a plan. I wanted a direction. Having served in uh, overseas, I did know that there were multinational corporations that uh, should have a use for someone who understands China, who understands the intelligence process and how useful and important intelligence is to decision making. And so I just I just looked for jobs uh, that way. By complete chance and luck, I, uh, the Walt Disney Company, uh, which had which had uh, reimagined how uh, how to conduct its global security enterprise, decided they wanted an intelligence uh, mission to be part of that. And how much did you use the, the skills that you learned at the agency? Every day. The, the key skills for a great intelligence analyst are twofold. One is uh, your ability to express yourself in writing or speaking or however. The other is critical thinking. So if you've got those two skills and you know how to apply them, every day when you, when you look through what seems to be just regular data, information, news, it becomes intelligence when you think about what this means for the company that you're working for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then being able to explain that 
uh, to your to your bosses, to your clients inside the firm uh, is and how persuasive you can be. All of those things I learned at the agency, and that was that was critical to whatever success I had at Disney. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Rodney Farron is a partner at Crumpton Group, a business intelligence and strategy firm. He is also a former CIA analyst. I recently sat down with Rodney with the intention of talking about life after being a CIA analyst, but we ended up talking about both his time on the inside as well as the many interesting things he has done on the outside. We'll be right back with that discussion after a quick break. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Rodney, welcome um, to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show with us, and it's great to talk to you again. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be here, Michael, and uh, it's been a long time. I'm, I'm really happy we could get reacquainted, uh, even though it's this way. Yeah, in different uh, different places, I guess, um, right. instead of instead of being in the studio. So, as you know, Rodney, this this episode is a is about life after being a CIA analyst, mm-hmm. um, and we'll get to that. But I also want to go through the CIA part of your career, if that's okay. Sure. And I guess the the first question I would ask is, how did you how did you end up there? Well, it's 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 literally is a long story. So, I'll, but I'll try to be concise. So, I first decided that I wanted to join CIA when I was in high school. So, imagine 1986, 1987. I'm a high school sophomore or junior, and the uh, the best selling books at the time were the Tom Clancy novels. And of course, yeah. uh, like like you and many others uh, from our organization, devoured them um, quickly. And I decided that because Jack Ryan was an analyst. Uh, I, I wanted to be that too. Uh, and so I decided at that age that I wanted to join CIA. And so I, I applied to a, a college um, in DC, Georgetown, to be as close to the agency as I possibly could. The hope here was that it was going to be like the British system, where if you go to Cambridge or Oxford, some senior professor or Don would tap you on the shoulder having noticed you and then say that there's a job opportunity that they'd like to talk to you about. But uh, unfortunately for me, no one, no one tapped me on the shoulder. <laughs> I guess it doesn't work that way in the United States. Well, this isn't for me. So it used to a long, long, long time ago, but not anymore. Yeah. Well, so what I did then was, and, and to tell you how long ago this was, I said, screw it. I'm just going to go and, and call the agency myself. So I, I looked up the number in the phone book uh, in the blue pages and I, I, I got, the agency, I still remember that main number, by the way. And I asked for personnel and I've essentially talked my way into getting an application uh, for, for a job there. And it worked. <laughs> That's wow. Yeah. So, so what, did you, what did you work on when you first came in? Uh, I worked on China. In fact, most of my career, which spanned about 15 years, was on China. Um, and what was interesting about this is you never know where, where things lead. So I remember coming into headquarters on my first day 
And uh, one of the uh, the analysts who was going to be my mentor said that, well, the managers are trying to figure out where in China division they wanted to put you. And of course, like many people, I wanted to do the sexy Chinese internal politics. And then maybe my second choice would be uh, looking at the People's Liberation Army, particularly the Navy, and then maybe foreign policy. What my mentor said was, well, it's either going to be uh, the military or it's going to be this thing called industrial technology. And of course, I said, that's the most, <laughs> didn't say this in, in, out loud, but I said in my head, that's the most boring sounding anodyne uh, subject matter that I could ever dream of, of devoting myself to. I hope it's not that. Well, guess what? It was that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it turned out to be um, interesting at the end because it was Chinese defense industries in the early 90s. And this was when defense industry, the Chinese defense industries were starting to uh, become privatized in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also a time when uh, China was uh, proliferating uh, weapons all around the world to sensitive countries. And my first account was to look at Chinese missile sales uh, around the globe. This was this ended up being not only really interesting from a technical point of view, but also uh, I got to, because of the course because of the matter of manner of the work, I got to meet and develop relationships with analysts from other parts of the building uh, who were basically as, assessing China's customers, whether they were Syria or Iran or Pakistan, and that served me well uh, later on in in my career. So, Rodney, did you have a lot of extensive China experience going in? No. Uh, the, uh, I, I came in as a, as a rising senior in college as an undergraduate intern. And what I had done, though, was when I was at, at college, I, I tried to fill my curriculum up with China-related work, uh, Chinese language, uh, history, politics. Uh, I, I, was, I was really interested in becoming an expert in that field. Also in Southeast Asia, because uh, I'm, I'm the son of Filipino immigrants, and I just love that part of the world. Um, some people ask me, what was it that got you interested in China back in 1988? And I said, well, it, actually, it's, it's, the story goes back to when I, was, when I was in sixth grade. So imagine this, in 1981, 1982, my mom, for some reason, brings a Time magazine with Deng Xiaoping on the cover. Uh, Deng being the uh, paramount leader of China at the time, and uh, says, you know what? I don't think Russia is going to be our, our enemy. It's going to be China in the future. Mm-hmm. And I never forgot that, um, especially when I went to my social studies class in sixth grade, said that to my friends, and they just laughed me out the door. Well, I, 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 that, that thought about China becoming a future rival just stuck with me. Um, and uh, I think that the big lesson here, though, is always listen to your mother. She's got, uh, she's got some wisdom. Absolutely. So, so, so how did you find working with a bunch of people in the China analytic group who lived and breathed China, right? They had been, Mm -hmm. they had studied there, they knew the language, they had devoted their life, right, to understanding China. And I always wondered what it was like to be, you know, a a non-China expert who was put into that situation. How did you find that? Well, I think I went in with the right attitude, which was I may know or think I know a lot about China, but these people do it every day, every minute of and every hour. Um, it was it was just fascinating. The education I got from sitting down with someone who had been working on China for 25 years and just talking about 
uh, his view of the country and how far it's it's developed and how it's changing. Uh, I could never get that kind of education anywhere else. So, Rodney, I I don't want to embarrass you, but you were an outstanding analyst, and you had an exceptional ability as a writer, and both of those things gave you some great opportunities. One of them was being the daily intelligence briefer for the second longest serving Mm. director of central intelligence ever, George Tennant. So Mm. what was that job like? It was, uh, looking back, it was, I think, the best job I've ever had in my life. Um, you're, you're sitting there at the right hand of, uh, of a great man who happens to be the director of central intelligence. And every morning when you bring him the president's daily briefing, you listen to him react to the stories. You listen to him uh, calling the White House. It was, it was just a fascinating um, experience, and I was glad to have some small contribution there. You know, it's funny. I list as my favorite job ever when I was his executive assistant. So, mm-hmm. and it was it was working for him, right? It was he was he was a pretty special guy. What was what was he like as a person? Uh, really down to earth. Um, you knew he was the boss. You, you never forgot that. <laughs> never uh, forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> but he had a great he had he has a great sense of humor. Um, he really listened. And I, I felt that he cared about people. Um, it, one, of my, one of the things that I tried to do when I was his briefer was not only present him with the substance of what CIA was saying to the president that day, but also giving a feel for what I was hearing, what we call around the building mm-hmm. about things. And uh, George would occasionally just solicit opinions from me. For example, when he was coming out with the, uh, his first big effort to change the strategic direction of CIA. After so many years, he asked me, what was, what was the reaction of the building to what I said? Hmm. And I told him and he, he heard it. And, uh, I think, I hope it was useful. Yeah. You also had, you also had the pleasure of writing the worldwide threat testimony. Yes. Three um, times. And, and if I remember, yeah, it was multiple times because you were, you were so good at it. And I think, I think I was somehow responsible for at least one of those times happening. Um, Two of those times I counted, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell people what the process of putting together the worldwide threat testimony is actually like, right? Because you're not an expert no. on all of those other issues, right? You're an expert on one of them, but not all of them. So how, how does that process work? Well, it was good that I was a PDB briefer at the time because uh, I had a, a good overview of the priorities that CIA and the president had for foreign policy and a good feel for the overall risks. Um, but this was definitely a, a bottom-up exercise, which is the way it should be, where the senior experts from around uh, the agency, uh, looking at uh, regional as well as technical threats, terrorism, crime, narcotics, would proffer ideas uh, to to uh, the seventh floor for what should be in the testimony. What what does the building think? Uh, are the are the biggest threats to uh, to America and that we're going to be watching over the next year very closely. So I would solicit all of these things and then try to compile it into one document. Um, we have great writers at CIA, so it was a matter of of stitching together and editing them so that it was it was basically uh, sounded like it was coming from one person. 
And for me, the greatest part of this was crafting the opening statement and the conclusion. Uh, and that's where I that's where I really got to become creative in my own right and uh, and, and imagine what the director would want to say uh, to the American public since these were televised in public. Uh, and, uh, and and fortunately, I was because I had spent so much time with him. Um, I, I really got to learn his voice and how he thought. So, so you're being Rodney. You're being um, a little bit modest here. So, the pieces that the inputs you got. Let's be honest. We're not. We're not perfect. People are good writers, but they weren't perfect. And trying to trying to understand what the analysts are trying to say, and being able to take that and make that simple for a smart generalist to understand is a, mm-hmm. is a, is a real skill set that you had. So you actually had to do a lot of work if I remember correctly. It's, it, it's a lot of work. Um, but at the same time, um, we have, as, as you well know, so many smart people there that the work was actually kind of fun. Um, and I, I would say that the biggest challenge for most of our, our analysts was to ensure that we had a clear point of view. I think it too often it's easy to look at the body of information about a certain subject mm. and say on the one hand it could be this on the other hand it could be that and maybe the information is inconclusive but the taxpayer is not paying you to give us a wishy-washy view of what the world is like. Um we understand there'll be gaps and and some and missing information and you won't be right all the time but you owe it to us to give us your expert opinion on how things are. Yeah. And how did you, did you actually learn from one testimony to another, to another, or or was each pretty much the same? There was a general template. Uh, What was different about the third testimony was that that was the first under the Bush administration, as I recall. And and, and although the the information was not that much different than before, it it definitely, um, because it was reflecting a new administration and, and George being a holdover from the previous one, we had to make sure that 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 we got the tone exactly right on that. Yeah. So, Ronnie, you were you were doing fantastic at the agency. You had an extraordinarily bright career ahead of you. Why did Why did you decide to leave? Well, leaving was one of the toughest decisions I've ever had to make. And I remember the day that uh, that I went in to announce to. Um, the rest of China division that I was, that I was leaving, I, I, I bawled my eyes out. I couldn't help it. It was, it was very emotional. Uh, and the reason was that uh, it, I had come back from two years or three years overseas uh, and in the summer of 2000, actually the fall of 2004, uh, director Tennant had resigned um, in July of that summer. And we had all sorts of changes happening to CIA and the intelligence community writ large. Well, you and I know that um, sticking it out and living through different uh, management administrations is just part of the job. And that was fine. Uh, but what I, what I saw was that we had the introduction of the director of national intelligence, uh, which to me, it made me feel a little bit diminished, I think, at the agency because we felt less central than we were before. Hmm. And, the, and some of the leadership that I was witnessing. Um, they're great people, smart people, but a lot of the advice I was getting, uh, we were getting was just hunker down, keep your head down and keep doing what you're doing. And I, I wanted more than that. I wanted, I wanted a plan. I wanted a direction. 
Um, and so I also, also what I wanted to do was, was not infect others with my unhappiness or my pessimism. So calculating how many years it would take for me to retire fully, I decided that instead of waiting, I was going to um, uh, try to take my career into my own hands and, and find my way around. And hopefully, if, if they'll have me back someday, uh, someday, maybe even come back. So how important was George's departure to your thinking? It was it, it was critical. Uh, it, it was critical. It was it was probably the um, the factor that weighed the most. Uh, and it wasn't because, the, you know, his his successors were that different or that bad. Uh, it was it was just that I missed I missed his personal leadership style, his touch, and that uh, um, I, I knew that things were going to be different. Things were not going to be the same. We're going to take a quick break. Then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Rodney Farron. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So, Rodney, you end up at at Disney after you leave. How did that happen, and what was your job there? Uh, It happened by luck and by chance. So, recall that I was unhappy with uh, the general situation uh, with with the agency and the intelligence community. So I decided to try to see what was out there. Um, and I'll, I'll remind everyone that this was my first real job right out of college. So after 15 years, it, it's, it's a big decision, a hard decision. And I really didn't understand what the, what the private sector had to offer. Um, but what I did know was that I, having served in uh, overseas, I did know that there were multinational corporations that uh, should have a use for someone who understands China, uh, who understands counterterrorism, who understands security, who understands uh, the intelligence process and how useful and important intelligence is to decision making. And so I just I just looked for jobs uh, that way. Um, and uh, by complete chance and luck i uh, the Walt Disney Company uh, which had which had uh, reimagined how uh, how to conduct its intelligence enterprise decided that they wanted an uh, an intelligence um, I'm sorry not intelligence enterprise it's global security enterprise decided they wanted an intelligence uh, mission to be part of that so they uh, they they were advertising for a director of global intelligence and threat analysis. And I read the qualifications. I said, I could do that. I've done that before. It seems, it seems pretty reasonable to me. And what did you, what did you do in the job? What was, what was an average day like? The, the important thing for me was to find a, a place to land where I felt I could serve a bigger mission. And Disney was one of those places we all as Americans grew up with it. Uh, it, it just felt bigger than, um, than, than just another company. Right. And I took that on board as a mission. Um, and so the, the day-to-day was very similar to what we did in regular intelligence work. 
let's understand what the interests of the company are. In, in, at CI, it's the interests of the country. Uh, evaluate the nightly traffic, the daily traffic, what, what's happening around the world that could have some effect on how company operations um, uh, occurred. And that could be either uh, if, from the point of view of risk, uh, which was my main job, but also opportunity. Uh, where else could we help the business strike out and, and find new opportunities to grow? Uh, that's another role of intelligence I think is is not really talked about very much. Uh, we mm-hmm. always talk about preventing um, terrorism, preventing bad things from happening, but also can we highlight things over the horizon that people aren't seeing that could lead to good things? And that's what I try to do at the company. And 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 how much did you use the the skills that you learned at the agency? Every day. Every day. Uh, so the, the key skills, and actually, Michael, you taught me this. The, the key skills for a great intelligence analyst are twofold. One is uh, your ability to express yourself in writing or speaking or however. The other is critical thinking. So if you've got those two skills and you know how to apply them, when you, when, every day when you, when you look through what seems to be just regular data, information, news, it becomes intelligence when you think about what this means for the company that you're working for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then being able to explain that uh, to, your, to your bosses, to your clients inside the firm, uh, is, and how persuasive you can be. All of those things I learned at the agency, and that was, that was critical to whatever success I had at Disney. So, Ronnie, what did, what did working at Disney teach you? It taught me to emphasize creativity, Disney being one of those places that's, that, that values creativity as a central tenant for the business. Um, I got to know several people who are either screenwriters. I got to know the, the folks whom we call Imagineers, the ones who, who tried to, who, the engineers, industrial engineers usually, uh, who tried to imagine different ways that a customer at a theme park could experience a Disney story uh, uniquely. Um, and so they were constantly coming up with ideas and testing new things and even creating technologies. And I thought that, it, it, you know, we, we always talked about how imagination is important for the intelligence business. Right. Well, being at Disney uh, really hammered home the importance of it because what Disney did was they looked for it, right? Yeah. I think too often at, uh, at CIA, we're, we're looking for a certain set of skills, but we don't, actually come out and, and, and test for creativity. I mean, it's different at Disney, and that's what I learned. So where did you go, where did you go after Disney, and what, what drew you there? Well, I spent three years at, at Disney, um, and then I, I left because uh, Ambassador Hank Crumpton, who is a, uh, a, a CIA legend and operations officer who uh, was a, a counterterrorism expert and who... Um, who planned and, and helped lead and, and win the war in Afghanistan. He, uh, he retired. Uh, this was about 2008. And he decided that he wanted to bring the same sorts of services, advice, information, intelligence that we brought to the president of the United States, but in this case, to the presidents and CEOs of companies. Uh, because it, it's, it was obvious to all of us in the intelligence business that uh, the way to get to the best decisions possible, you have to have the best information available. 
Now, the information may be flawed, the decisions may be wrong, but at least you've got a fighting chance to get it right. So Hank asked me to join his company. Uh, and what he said was, I want, I want you to, to try to do what you're doing at Disney, but on a broader stage. Uh, because at this point, as a consulting company, we were looking at dozens of clients, not just not just one main one. And did you did you know Hank at the agency? No, no, I didn't. I didn't. I was uh, actually introduced by a close mutual friend, uh, Richard Blee, uh, who yeah. was uh, who was who was living in Los Angeles at the time. Uh, and and what they told me was that when Hank and Rich decided to start Crumpton Group, uh, they went up to uh, this. This is where it all comes full circle, Michael. They went up to New York to go talk to uh, uh, Herb Allen at Allen and Company and, and George Tennant, who was there as well. And George said, well, you two are a couple of knuckle-dragging operations officers. It, it was a joke. So what you guys need is a product. You guys need an analyst to help you come up with something to sell. So right. Rich uh, immediately said that, well, what about Rodney Farron over at Disney? And uh, George just immediately said yes, because he knew who I was. So Rodney, what what does a business intelligence firm do? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's fun to explain this because business intelligence means different things to all sorts of different people. Uh, but the way that we define it is that we are going to provide you with the best information we possibly can so that you can make the most effective, accurate, correct decision possible um, and most effectively. So, uh, so it, 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 we work our best when we have in an ongoing relationship with a client, uh, something where we're in the room regularly and we can mm. understand the client's interests as well as, if not better than they can. Mm. Um, and uh, but oftentimes we're we're brought on to uh, to look at a at a at a discrete uh, problem, such as, well, I'm thinking about going to business in China, uh, and this particular partner has presented themselves as an opportunity. What do you think? Um, and what we'll do is we'll, we'll tell them what we think based on the research that we do, based on the best locally collected available information that we can find. And then we apply expertise to turn this information to something useful for the clients. That's what business intelligence is. So Rodney, while at Crumpton, you get involved in the film industry. Yes. And you actually uh, start a production company called Ardwolf Entertainment. How did that come about? Uh, it was a combination of just th the right things happening at the right time. So first of all, I've always had an interest in the world of, of entertainment, whether it's television or film. Um, when I was at Disney, I, I, I tried on the side to meet as many screenwriters as I possibly and producers that I possibly could because I someday wanted to uh, scratch that creative itch and, and perhaps join those ranks. Ambassador Crumpton had written a best-selling book on the New York Times best-selling list called Ar The Art of Intelligence that got a lot of attention around, not only around the, the community and the public, but also in the world of entertainment that's constantly looking for cool creative content about, about spies. Uh, and when they approached him to see if they could buy the rights from his book, he came to me to ask what I thought, uh, mainly because even though I'm not a Hollywood executive, uh, I, I knew more about it than anybody else in the company did. And I told him, look, Hank, um, so here's what's going to happen. First of all, you're not going to make as much money as J.K. Rowling, the, the uh, author of Harry Potter. It's just yeah. not that kind of book. Uh, and secondly, this is what you're going to be most, most concerned about. This book is about you personally. So if they turn this into a project, 
they're going to own you. And they're going to be able to tell your story the way that they want to tell it, not necessarily the way that you want to tell it. So Hank said, well, I don't want to do that. And then I said, but what we can do with this type of momentum and publicity is try to bring stories to these very hungry producers and financiers about the intelligence community that are accurate, that reflect who the people are in the community, in the building, and, uh, and, and it would be a lot of fun that they've never heard of before. So we, uh, we decided to take a chance. So Ardwolf Entertainment, where did the name come from? I'm not sure I'm able to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think you can. You think I, I can? Think you can. All right, yes, all right. you can. Okay, okay, good, good, good. Well, uh, my usual answer is that it's a, a hyena-like animal that's <laughs> native to Southern Africa. That's true. Uh, <laughs> which is true. Uh, but it also is the uh, the, the code name for uh, a special communication uh, a cable from the field where the chiefs of station in uh, a given country provide their personal assessment of what's happening. So what was meaningful to us about this name was that we, as former CIA officers, uh, and perhaps as the first producers of this type of entertainment content, wanted to present our perspective on what intelligence is all about to the public. Right. So tell us what it was like to make State of Affairs, which was, a, I think, an NBC program, correct? That, that, that's right. Uh, we pitched it to six different networks, got four offers. Um, it, was a, it was educational and a, and a blast and a lot of fun. Um, you know, first, uh, what really impressed me about Hollywood was when we finally went into production, um, seeing how this machine worked, you, you have an idea and then the writers turn this into a script and then the directors and the crew, um, make it happen visually. Uh, and they all know what they're doing. They don't have to be told exactly how to do things. They, they seek mm. advice because they ask me, well, what does the inside of a CIA vault and office look like? Um, and it was fun to to try to recreate that. And even down to the point where we got the same sorts of burn bags that we used uh, in the building uh, for for the show. Um, it was it was really it was really fun to do. And what what you said this was educational. What did you what did you learn from from doing this? Well, I learned about how the industry worked. And um, how really how uh, how many people are involved in the creation of a show, um, which it can be good and bad. I mean, when you get creative notes from network executives uh, to 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 turn the drama in a different direction that you may not agree with, but you have to because they own the show. Um, that's instructive. Uh, when they come up with an idea for the show that you never would have thought about, but it made it a hundred times better. That's instructive. Uh, I didn't realize that how much authorship, uh, actually very similar to what we saw in the intelligence community, was uh, it was it was a corporate thing. It was it was a lot of different people uh, doing their best to come out with what they thought was the best product possible. So finally, Rodney, you get involved in investment banking. How did that happen? Well, it's more private equity than investment banking, <laughs> um, and uh, this was just. Uh, you know, the, uh, what, one thing that Hank Crumpton taught me about being an operations officer or an executive was uh, you really got to have allies. You have to have allies and friends because if you try to do things alone, you're less likely to succeed. 
and not only is it easier uh, to do things with friends, but it's also um, it, it, it's also a lot more fun. So in the course of our work with our company, uh, we met a lot of folks who were clients or who also just friends of the firm who were involved in, in equity investment or investment banking. Um, and uh, in the course of our discussions and uh, as we proceeded with the relationship, uh, we both realized that we've got some interesting ideas about the kinds of technologies uh, that may have their roots in national security and intelligence, but that could have great application uh, for the private sector. Mm. So uh, we just decided uh, to be as agile as we possibly could and, and work with a partner uh, to form a fund that could, very similar to Incutel, yeah, but but it's the reverse. Those... It's the reverse of Incutel, right? In a sense. In what way? Um, in Incutel looks for commercially available products that would be useful to the to the to the government, and you're looking the other way. That's exactly right. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, and in fact, what's interesting in in the course of of the and we've only been doing this for less than a year, uh, but I found that uh, the sexy new industry is artificial intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out that artificial intelligence, its applications and use far advanced in the national security and intelligence community than it is in, in the private sector. And there's a wow. lot of great lessons to learn about it and a lot of great things that we can do if we were able to find the right shareable technologies and experts. So mm-hmm. that's one of the things we're looking at right now. So that's not that's not a that's not the conventional wisdom, right? The conventional wisdom is that the government's way behind. It's interesting that you say it's it's the reverse. Yes, and I think the reason why is because there's a mission imperative to make to to try to get the best technologies possible to to fight the fight, right? And when it's national security, when it's possibly life and death, um, things evolve a lot faster than they do when the impetus is market share or revenue, right? So, yeah. um, so we found a lot of the innovation is actually in, in the government. And, and you're right. It, is, it, it does seem uh, backward from what we've seen over the last 20 years or so, uh, but it's a, it's a really fascinating development. Ronnie, you've been, you've been amazing with your time. Let me just ask you a couple more questions. Do you, do you still follow China? I do. Because? It's important or because of your interest or both? Well, my mom told me so. So <laughs> That's <laughs> <But> great. <yeah. laughs> and then you sort of you sort of already answered this, but do you miss CIA? Uh yeah. I, I miss it a lot. Um certainly I miss the people that I worked with. Um but I, I was able to develop a lot of the same sort of happy feelings wherever I've been. Not because of me, but because I was able to choose places where all the people were looking in the same direction and that we could focus on what that mission is. Um, but I've never, I've never lost my love for intelligence, nor my, my love for this country. And to the extent I could ever give back and make things better. Um, you know, I, I would still love to do that someday. Rodney, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to have you on the show. No, thank thank you, Michael, for the opportunity and, and, and for your friendship and for everything that you've done for, for me and my family. Um, thank you. That was Rodney Farron. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.